from the boardroom to the shop floor. Good business runs on good governance. Join esteemed expert in governance, Dr. Nimrod Dembele, for the next hour as he takes us beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa. Come once again, and thanks for tuning in. My name is Nimrod Dembele, and I'm delighted to be in your company, and thanks for affording me this opportunity to share my thoughts alongside those of my guests. And let me pay homage to those who have paved the way for this show, Thanks to the high drive team, uh, that being Simon and Dominic and, uh, and everyone else who has support, who's supporting the show. If you missed our show last week, not to worry, simply download the podcast on, um, on the interview I had with Loic Poich, who is the MD of a company called Disruptive Leap, you know. Uh, I suppose, um, we can all do with a bit of, uh, disruption. Uh, or leap, so to speak. I thoroughly enjoyed that particular conversation, especially given the unpleasant economic climate we find ourselves in, you know, at the moment. We certainly can do with a leap of, say, about, you know, 4% uh, economic growth in order to arrest the debt and, and promote economic recovery by way of investing in labor-absorbing absor- uh, sectors such as manufacturing, uh, agriculture, and hospitality. Uh, that would be great, isn't it? Anyway, if you missed that particular conversation, uh, download our website uh, on uh, and, and really give us your thoughts, as I've indicated earlier. Um, your thoughts and, and, and views are welcome via the SMS line, which is 34519. Telegram, which is uh, 061-895109. And, of course, uh, welcome your thoughts via email as well. My email address is nimrod at hydrocero.za. As always, I'm not trying solo. I have Tabo, who is the producer of the show, and Kabisa, who, who is the coordinator. Guys, thank you very much in advance, for I believe the show will go according to the plan. Now, moving on swiftly, um, we often start a show by quickly reflecting on issues that are of significance. Uh, let's start off by reflecting on Stan of Saga. What do you think, what, what do you make of the fine imposed by the John F. Stake Exchange for the corporate governance scandal? that plunged overnight 8% shares of uh, the company back in 2017. And we often call it um, uh, accounting irregularities. I've often battled to understand that kind of narrative. We should call it what it is. It was it was just a scandal. It was a colossal of corporate governance. For we had the body of the shareholders that we found wanting when it comes to when it comes to issues of accountability. Anyway, the report suggests that the, you know, the company has been stepped with about 13.5 million rents, um, including, including 7.5 fine for publishing incorrect, false and misleading information. I mean, this was just completely out of order. But what does it mean in terms of, um, the board members who, who were, who, you know, who in my view were, were of the top notch? These were cream de la cream executives with substantial pedigree in retail, finance, risk, and legal and operations. What happened to those guys? What lessons are we learning from these kinds of uh, situation? What is clear to me is that we have uh, the, the shareholder failed in its role to provide oversight, and and that sense of shareholder, shareholder activism um, was an absolute failure, and also get a sense that the continuous independence assessment of the board and management uh, was far wanting, which is something that we should all always look for, for in order to ensure that 
there's some kind of return on investment. It also be interesting to see what has happened to the son of auditors in the multi-year fraud. That's so the company that was, you know, heralded as one of the best top 40 companies in the Johannesburg stock exchange. What, where are these, uh, what happened to these auditors? Where were they when this thing happened? Anyway, the history has taught us that corporate governance scandals are often aided uh, by collusion between internal and external auditors because none of these things happen when the auditors are doing the work, both internal and external. Anyway, moving on swiftly in terms of recapping or perhaps reflect on an issue that really is, is of interest, the state capture. I mean, as we continue to share the testimonies of the Zona Commission, one is left with perpetual shock, a bitter taste in the mouth when one hears over and again how executives uh, who have proximity to politicians can shamelessly dictate to incumbents, uh, executive in terms of which companies to be considered for tenders, despite the PFMA, despite the Companies Act, despite Kim 4 codes, despite every protocol conceivable. We have had instances such as the Transnet. When you have heard the, 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 the testimony of uh, Transnet, I mean, it's just shocking, to say the least. Anyway, uh, SABC, I mean, what do you make of the dismissal of the 13 employees at the SABC following the public protector report? We've heard that the uh, SABC embarked on investigation. Of course, we understand there's a need for investigation to be effected. But here's my, my quagmire. Those that were found having been, you know, uh, employed or promoted irregularly, the issue that comes to mind in terms of, of uh, labor, labor, and appeal just logic. Who appoints you? I mean, nobody appoints himself, gets, promotes himself and adjusts their salaries. There is an, there is a supervisor or a manager who's acting on behalf of the company, but there's also the subordinate who is supposedly the beneficiary of these things. The question that should be everyone's mind is obviously the proof is going to be the burden of proof is going to be on the management of the SABC to prove that there was a collusion or those are those uh, promotion or irregular appointments were, of course, irregular. So, I mean, this is something that's going to be interesting because if, uh, because, I mean, nobody, like I said earlier, nobody employs herself or himself. Nobody promotes himself or herself. There's got to be. So, so who's falling? I mean, who's supposed to be falling on the sword? Surely cannot expect um, the incumbents, those that were found having, you know, those that were found to have been irregularly appointed, be the ones that, that, that face the music. Where is the, where, what happens to the seniors? What happened to the managers? Who appointed them? It will be interesting to see how this case uh, falls, but I see a whole lot of litigation on the side of those who were dismissed based on those kind of allegations. Anyway, moving on swiftly, uh, I just want to paint a picture that would, that would serve as a precursor with my, with my conversation with uh, Vusi Temagwayo, who's my guest tonight. We know for the fact that South African Inc. is, in a, is in, a, in a dire economic situation, perhaps even worse than most people would have liked to believe, especially our politicians. The present, you know, the, the president of the country uh, is caught up, we all know that it's caught up between, you know, the hard place and the rock uh, in terms of managing the economic growth while being mindful of serious fiscal challenges. We have been told that by the economist uh, that the, the economy would have 
shrunk by almost 10% in 2020. We also hear that and know that the South African government debt to GDP is now sitting almost like 70, 69%, 69.4%. We also know that the economic environment, if it prevails in the same kind of tra- trajectory, the, 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 the current debt to GDP is likely to exceed 100% by 2024. We know that the, uh, uh, the official unemployment rate is sitting at about 30%. That is if you're using a narrow definition of, uh, Unemployment, but when using a broader definition of unemployment, we're probably sitting about uh, 34 or so, even not more, even not more than that. We have about seven seven million South Africans who are without jobs. Before COVID-19, we had about 16 million, 16 and a half million South Africans who were employed, and this figure has drastically dropped. We're currently sitting at about 10 million South Africans who are in a, in a full-time employment. On the downside, we have about 17.8 million of poor South Africans who are receiving social grants from SASA to the value of about 10 billion rents per month. And as if it was not, if it, as if it was not worse, uh, to hit, you know, to the, the final nail in the coffin is the rate downgrading, uh, the, the South African and uh, the economic downgrade by the rating agencies, uh, late last year. And they are watching with asking out like hogs, uh, in the next couple of months or so. Anyway, in making sense of these contextual issues, I'm joined online by Vusi Temagwai, who is the CEO and the founder of My Growth. Let me take this opportunity to welcome Vusi. Good evening and welcome uh, to the show. Hey, Doc. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, we are quite pleased to have you on board as we make an, an, an effort to unpack very, very critical and complex issues. Uh, perhaps maybe before I get your thoughts, we know that last week, Vusi, uh, the president of the country uh, have ushered an economic reconstruction and recovery plan, which is aimed at helping the economy to recover from ravages of the coronavirus and lockdown. And I mean... <laughs> What's your take on that? Perhaps let me let's start that overall assessment of the plan, as it were. It wasn't a plan; it was a wish list. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I'm genuinely perplexed by South Africans and our, you know, constantly diminishing standards of what constitutes um, substantive thought. Right? The, the, it was not a plan; it was a wish list. It was no different to a state of the nation address, which the president delivers at the, at the commencement of every single year. Maybe, and, and let me contextualize this. You don't go through a global pandemic in an economy that was already in a recession, lose an additional 2.2 million jobs, have more people unemployed than you have people who vote, and then think that what the president delivered for us was by any stretch of the imagination sufficient. It just wasn't. And I I hate opposing for the sake of opposition. But if that was a plan, then I'm desperately worried for the for the short term prospects of our country. Wholly insufficient. Um not given where the country finds itself. And I I, I, I just think the president honestly, the president with the greatest of respect, the, the president and his cabinet have a responsibility to do better. I think I think people don't understand the gravity of the situation we're in. Losing 2.2 million jobs is akin to going to war. That's, you know, it's, it's a bit like South Africa was in war with a country and it decimated 8% of our GDP. 
That's where we were. Now, if this was a wartime president and we'd just been at war, lost 2.2 million jobs, um, I think over 10,000 people now who've passed from the disease and, and have more people unemployed than you have people voting, would this be a sufficient speech? I just, I don't see it. And I, again, I, one doesn't want to be combative or argumentative or opposing for the sake of opposition, but it was wholly insufficient. Oh, look, I mean, I think I think you entitled to your views, Vusi, considering the fact that, uh, you know, as you've currently pointed out, the country is in a dire economic constraint. But again, uh, it might just be useful just to give me a, 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 a part or an area which, you know, should have come across as much more tangible and concrete that would give ordinary, uh, you know, folk some level of confidence, let alone business. Confidence. What what exactly do you think was a a, a great limitation on the side of the president plan, as you call it, or speech? So, so first, I think scant on details. And admittedly, the finance minister has yet to deliver his medium-term budget. Um, right. So we we haven't yet had heard the MTPBS, and I, I imagine that the finance minister will give us further details. But it was it was desperately scant on details, scant on details about I'll, I'll give you an example. The president makes the admission in front of an entire nation that a Treasury backed loan guarantee scheme, which they chose to funnel through the banks. I'm one of the people who was very clear. Don't use the banks. Banks, by their very nature, have the first and most important mandate, which is share, protecting the, the depositors first Second, capital preservation. And third, shareholder value. That's what banks are focused on. Banks don't have a developmental mandate. That's not how banks work. So if you have an economy that requires a strong developmental mandate institution to pump capital using the credit market system into the economy and you use banks which have proven themselves to be risk risk averse, I mean, what were you expecting? It's a bit like... It's akin to, you know, to the president being warned by the Democratic Alliance to make sure that he had, as I remember it at the time, John Stenason said to him, Mr. President, make sure that you have sufficient rules and controls in place because they will be looting of the PPE fund. And the president assured the country, he assured us he had those sufficient controls in place. And what happened? We now know hundreds of millions of rands have been looted. So... I'm, I'm surprised that the president is surprised that the banks only issued 8% of what was a 200 billion rand loan guarantee scheme with an economy that's in crisis. And this is what I mean by it wasn't a plan, it was a wish list. In part because the things committed are not, don't give sufficient detail. And then in the other part because the president is relying on the same instruments which have let him down in the past. And I'm not sure, I just don't know where he draws the evidence from that these new approaches will work. 100 billion rand um, infrastructure program. What did the president not tell us? That the 100 billion rand wasn't going to come from the, from the fiscus. The fiscus doesn't have 100 billion rand. So that 100 billion rand, he's, he's basically saying it's 100 billion rand that must, pri- that must come from the private sector. The president then spoke about, I think it was an additional 11,000 megawatts. I speak under correction. Speak to any energy consultant and any energy expert, and they'll tell you 11,000 additional megawatts by the timeline the president is talking about is an incredibly ambitious target. The president said 800,000 job opportunities. Weren't we promised 500,000 job opportunities a year, a year ago? 
in fact, two years ago. They've missed the target then. They will miss it again now. So this is what I mean by it's not a plan. It's a wish list. The plan is how to. It's not what to. And there was no how to in this. It was all what we're going to do. I actually like the idea, I mean, the point that you've just made in terms of the instruments which the president used to uh, channel the resources that, you know, that were coming through. I mean, um, you know, as you've correctly pointed out, the banks. But here comes a question for me. I mean, I'm sure every listener would want to get a sense from you in terms, I mean, obviously, you know, the fact that the government had, had to rely or use the private sector instruments, which by their nature are risk averse and they don't have that kind of, of a developmental mandate as you've correctly put it out. Isn't that an issue of the weakness of the state? Because if the state had capacity and capability, the president would not have, would not have, uh, used predominantly private sector mechanism. Uh, which don't have a similar mandate. What's your take in terms of, uh, you know, government's capacity to execute these kind of problems? It is in part, you're correct, in part. I think you're partially correct. It is in part because the president, the, the, there is a, uh, an issue around the capacity and competence of the organs of state. There is also an issue around public trust. If the president had told us that he was going to use state instruments, to disperse 200 billion rand, I can assure you now that a, part, a portion of what is happening with the PPE scandal would have def, def, definitely happened. About that, you can have absolutely no doubt. So there's an, there's an element of public trust, learned behavior, a culture of corruption and theft, as well as, as, well as a, an incompetent state. But if I'm honest, I think there's also an element of a lack of imagination. This is the lack of imagination, right? So in the United Kingdom, when, 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 um, the Brits developed a system of furlough. They thought about the problem they had, and they had a creative solution to it. It seems to me, this is why I detest with, you know, all the bone in my body, every time I hear government officials talk about international best practice, because international best practice presupposes that the environment in which that best practice was developed is akin to the environment you're operating in. And South Africa's environment is wholly unique, wholly unique. So what we didn't do was to come up with creative solutions around how you could have deployed that capital. So, for instance, you've got a private equity venture capital ecosystem that's just a stitch on 200 billion rand. The president designs a 200 billion rand loan guarantee scheme and doesn't go to that ecosystem and say, I've got five or 10 percent of this. Can we work together? Right. You've got a credit capital market system, which is easily a trillion rand. The president doesn't tap into that either. He goes directly to the banks, then says to the banks, use the old rudimentary high risk averse credit scoring models and disperse money into an environment where consumers and businesses are already distressed. And then is surprised at the outcomes. So I think in part it's because of the aforementioned factors, a lack of imagination um, and corruption, etc. But we also have to lay the blame at the at the door of those in charge who are just not thinking about the problems we're having in a unique way and looking for unique solutions. I mean, if you're looking for a creative ways, I mean, uh, in a context of South African setup, one would imagine um, bringing in, you know, universities and, uh, you know, business schools um, as amongst the, the thought leaders uh, and obviously individuals uh, who are in the private equity environment because their core business is to leverage funding, uh, you know, for, 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 for expansion. And so why are we not 
uh, utilizing or leveraging on the, you know, in, in intellectual ecosystem as it were, such so that we are able to provide creative solutions, uh, not because we are pressed for, for, for delivery, but as a proactive, because my sense is that we often find ourselves in a, a, a defense mode. We're not in a, not in a space where we are proactively engaging, um, you know, institutions of government. For an example, I've seen the, the death silence of the human resource development council, which is supposed to be a depository of, uh, country strategy in terms of executing proactively, um, plans that could bring the country out of this quagmire. Why, why are we failing to utilize what, what is supposedly, uh, one of the best, uh, you know, business schools in the country or of course, and in the country and in the continent. And obviously also, you know, bring on board uh, the entire ecosystem. What is it that we're not doing right? And how do we conscientize government to tap, to tap into what already exists as opposed to, you know, continuing with the kind of trajectory that lead us to an economic cul-de-sac. That's a that's um that's a big question, and it is it's a big question because that that question summarizes the sum total of where South Africa finds itself. And here is South Africa's biggest challenge: South Africa doesn't have a lack of talent, it doesn't have a lack of expertise, it doesn't have a lack of infrastructure, nor does it have a lack of resources. What South Africa has is a dire lack of trust. That's really where we are. We just don't trust each other. We're waiting for each other to fall over the fault lines of our presumed uh, narrow identities. That's South Africa's challenge. So there is, there is, to your point, wouldn't be, and there hasn't been, in my mind, more creative solutions coming out of the Treasury, coming out of government, coming out of the state, to engage with other partners in the ecosystem of this thing called a country we live in and this economy we're in, because we're just not thinking about it from the point of nationhood, about how we, you know, we're a country, we're not a nation. That's really where we are. And so we, because of that, there's a, there's a divide, a constant divide. That's just a lack of trust. I, I suspect if you asked any person who is in the positions of authority in some of the public institutions that were charged with making the decisions as it pertains to policy on this, that made the decisions they made, and you ask them, why did you not find more creative solutions to do it? At the end of the day, if they were speaking candidly and frankly, they would probably just tell you because we don't trust the other people when we don't know them, right? We don't know how the guys in private equity would make decisions about investments and transactions. I mean, think about it. South Africa has the most well-developed private equity venture capital ecosystem in the continent, the most well-developed with the best regulated. About this, there is no debate. And the government completely sidelined asset managers, whose job it is to deploy capital into underlying businesses and manage it for growth, completely sidelined them. It just didn't talk to them at all. And this is one of several examples about how we're not meeting each other across the divide because we're just not in conversation. We're not talking. We're not, we're not finding each other. And that's a big, big problem. Talk of finding each other. Can we find each other on the break that um, Tabo is, is demanding that we we, we take? Uh, and, and let's come back in a short while because I think you raise a very poignant issue around how government is actually failing to leverage on the private equity system uh, to, to provide alternative or even at least give the 
other stakeholders a platform for them to add their views so that we find each other. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back on to the second leg of the show. If you've just joined us, I'm having a very uh, thought-provoking conversation with uh, Vosi Temagwai, who is the chief executive and the founder of MyGrowth. Uh, at the gist of our conversation is the unpacking of the the president's uh, you know economic recovery plan, which in Vosi's word, and that's not a plan but just a wish list. One of the you know uh, limitations which he had pointed out to speaks to the failure of the you know presidency or government as a whole to leverage on capable institutions that could harness the investments which have been put forward. Uh, you know, his view is, you know, is that the, the private equity ecosystem would have provided a creative solution in terms of providing sustainable solution around how best to utilize the, ref- the resources which governors had. And, and I was quite pleased to pick up, you know, Vusi's view, which I really concurred with in terms of, um, you know, that, that dialect of trust, uh, between, between, you know, government, you know, treasury institutions, uh, uh, and of course the private equity system. Be that as may, we have identified the challenge. Moving forward, we obviously have to be in a space where we are solution oriented, uh, So how do we therefore, uh, you know, create a environment that is robust around what is practical and what is required? bearing in mind that the country can no longer afford any delays. And I, I suspect that's, I mean, that's obviously the nub of the issue, right, is it's knowing what we know, now what? Um, and I, I, I want to, to preface this by saying that I think, I, I, I just wanted to be on the record that I'm, I recognize the efforts, particularly of the president, but broadly of this administration, um, because they didn't take over what was a rosy picture. And so one, one is critical, of course, but one is critical because from whom to whom much is given, much is expected. And, and I think the, my, uh, you know, this criticism comes because we are all hoping against all hope that the president delivers, um, far more poignantly than he has to date. Um, and so I think that's an important point to make that we recognize the effort, but, but the, he's going to have to do more. So the question you asked was, so what should have been there? Now, in my mind, when you're trying to rebuild an economy post a pandemic, you, you need to do certain things in the short term to um, stabilize the economy. And then there are things you need to think about doing in the medium to the long term to bring back momentum into the system. Because both negative and positive movements, ask any mathematics student, and they'll tell you that both negative and positive gather momentum. So when things go wrong, they go wrong and they they accelerate at the the rate at which they go wrong. And we've seen this with the deterioration of public trust uh, in South Africa. That deterioration of public trust, the fleecing of the state, the corruption, was just a deterioration. And things got worse. And people mirror the behavior they see being rewarded and all the behavior they see not being punished. So, again, I'm going in a long about way of trying to answer your question. What should the president have done? The irony of where we find ourselves, Nimrod, 
is actually that this is not the first time South Africa is here. If you study the history of our country and the history of our economy, it's, we have these 15-year cycles and every 50-year cycles and every 50 years, these juggernaut businesses are built that rebuild and recreate and restructure the face of the country. So, you know, 50 years ago, companies like um, uh, Pick and Pay, ShopRite, um, Ethel Tile, a lot of the steel manufacturers were built around that time, 50 years ago. 50 years before that, companies like um, um, Sunlam, Santam, um, a lot of the large in, um, institutional investors and insurance companies were built then. 50 years before that, Standard Bank, Mutual and Federal. So uh, we had this 50-year cycle of building these incredible businesses every 50 years. And I think what the president is missing is that this is the time. This is that 50 years now. So we can't do business as usual. Because what the South African system is telling the president and those in power is that the system is not sustainable because the underlying foundation is not broad enough for everybody to participate. Remember here, what we did post-1994 is we took capital from the capital markets and flooded it into large listed equities through a demography-based share buyback scheme called BEE, where a few people benefited from large listed companies. We didn't rebuild or build new companies. So it's of, it's of little wonder then that, you know, a quarter of a century later, 20-something years later, we're in this position where you've not built any new businesses and you're saying, why was there a queue? I don't know if you saw the video, the queue of those young people standing outside Gwais, which is the Shisenyama in um, Kaelicha. Must be over a thousand young people standing in a queue for 20 jobs as waiters in a Shisenyama. How did we get here? We got here because we missed the opportunity to rebuild. And so the, the president really, if you want a rebuild, then rebuild, but do it. Don't, don't, don't intimate at it. Make the hard decisions now and do the things you need to do now. If it means you need to let go of, as, and I've changed my view on this 24 months ago, I felt we couldn't at the time, but you know, as evidence changes, you change your mind. The economy has changed since then. The world has changed since then. I don't know that we need a, a national airline. I certainly don't think we need a national airline that continues to be the, the burden on the fiscus that it is. We need to rethink about um, our energy mix and the energy industrial complex in South Africa. And whether or not, as is the case, even if independent power producers produce, then their route to market has to go through the ESCOM channel. And we need to think about whether or not that's the way to do things. The apartheid playbook can teach us so much. There's so much to learn. And one of the things you learn from how the architects of apartheid, and whilst the system was evil, you can't argue with the fact that they built industrial competence in South Africa. You just can't argue that. The evidence is clear to back it up. But what the apartheid um, architects showed us was to rebuild an economy, you need three things. You need access to cheap capital, yeah? You need access to cheap power, yeah? And you need a well-built distribution network. Well, what have we done? Access to cheap capital, you and I just had a long conversation about how the banks are definitely not going to do that. Access to cheap power, ESCOM every single year gets turned back by NERSA because they keep applying for rates which are higher than the, the higher than the than the inflation rate and, and as a consequence would push would would, would, would create a, a problem for, for the Reserve Bank. And access to distribution infrastructure, well just go on your Twitter timeline and see what's happened with our rail infrastructure. 
Yesterday, I was in the Val. I couldn't believe the number of potholes I saw on much of the infrastructure that's used by trucks to access the Val area because that's an industrial area. These three is where the president needs, and he needs to be deliberate. On power, we're going to do this. And if you say 11,000 kilowatts, then talk a bit about what's the program, who's going to do it, and what's going to happen if it's not done. If you're going to talk about access to cheap capital, who's going to do it? And you can't use archaic instruments to solve a new problem. You can't use banks to solve this problem. They've proven themselves wholly ineffective at doing this. I have a lot of time and a lot of respect for our banks, but this is just not what they're good at. And in, in terms of access to, dis, to, to, to infrastructure, particularly distribution infrastructure, well, the first thing to do is to protect our current distribution infrastructure, our rail network, rail network, road network, um, air, um, air freight network. We need to protect it first. And second, you then need to have a plan on how you're going to build that network going forward. These are the things we need to hear from the president. And as I say, with respect, I, I think – I don't think that this is what we're hearing. Just a final note for you, Nimrod, even on the infrastructure program that the president is talking about, one of the things people aren't talking about, and it's, it seems to me a curious blind spot, is that actually a large portion of that infrastructure program is social infrastructure. It's not industrial infrastructure. So when you build homes for the poor, and just to be clear, homes for the poor are an absolute necessity, but homes for the poor are not an economic multiplier. So you go and build homes for the poor, but but beyond that, then what? And so you've got these social infrastructure programs, the one that was launched now in Moiklof, which is the affordable housing project. Fantastic project. Great project. But that's not an economic multiplier because it'll spur up production it'll, of, of uh, construction materials. It'll spur up the construction sector. It'll spur up the engineering sector for a time. And then when it ceases, then what? So the, the point about it is that we have to think about these things being sustainable and have the right conversations, not just be in the conversations saying the right things. But, but here's, here's something that, that, you know, baffles me, uh, Fusi, which, um, you know, as a member of a business community, it, it ought to, you know, uh, baffles you as well. Because, I mean, my sense is that business community, you know, just, just talks, but there's not much action. You know, business, it's almost in the, at the periphery of serious economic planning. You know, if the bulk of the infrastructure uh, and investments are going to be driven by private sector, um, you know, setup, surely you would expect private sector in the likes of business leadership, SA, in the likes of, uh, you know, uh, BUSA, business unit in South Africa, and so on and so forth, to be at the forefront of advising government through NEDLEC. And and I don't get a sense that NEDLEC is actually uh, playing that role insofar as elevating and promoting the role of business as an employer. Government's role, we all know government's role, particularly in the context of the economic situation that we find ourselves in, is that of being an enabler. And, and all these monies that come, that the president spoke about, 100 billion rands, it's not money that is readily available in the fiscus. This money has to be borrowed. So if you're going to borrow, surely the argument is that you need to elevate and bring critical role players, i.e. those that has the purse, for them to lead as opposed to be at the periphery of economic recovery, as it were. So that my view is that should we get to a space where um, business, obviously I'm not, I'm not part of the, the Nelly conversation, but 
I don't get a sense that NetLed as a, as a platform, which comprises of all the social partners, um, you know, particularly business, uh, being elevated beyond just the periphery and assuming the central role uh, in deploying the resources that is, that is required. How do we change that picture? Yeah, so I do know, um, and I, you know, I have enough access into the people who are in those fora to know that the tough conversations are definitely being had. So about that, you can rest easy. The tough conversations are being had. I think the difficulty is South African business has the culture of, as is the case in many emerging markets, by the way, of a business community that doesn't want to be seen to cause offense. And so what they will do is they will, they will have the tough conversations in quiet areas, in the small boardrooms and the small rooms, but they won't do so publicly. So for instance, think back to the now famous 10 wasted years, a phrase by the way with which I don't agree, but let's imagine that that is, it is true for a moment. In that time, business knew what was happening, but very few CEOs and chairmen of boards and large listed companies on the exchange would dare have the audacity to call it out. And when um, um, uh, Professor Rulkosa did do, we saw that he suffered consequences for it, right? Because he, he was very clear. He came out publicly and he spoke about what was wrong and why it was wrong. Ndadebunang Mohale is another one, a man for whom I have a great amount of respect, who speaks his mind, clear, principled, unimpeachable, very clear, right? So, so, but these are outliers. Most business people uh, do worry about protecting shareholder interests. They do worry about the narrow interest of their own share prices and about not attracting the right kind of attention to themselves. And so as a consequence, they tend to adopt this um, quiet diplomacy approach, which uh, is an interesting term because it's tautologist. Diplomacy by its very nature is quiet. So they tend to adopt this quiet diplomacy approach, right, of talking in the small rooms. The issue with that is that it doesn't do anything for public confidence. And so you and I, as members of the public, then look and go, but where is business and why is business quiet and why is business not saying it? Look, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, Vusi, because this is some, this is the narrative that really needs to change because um, we all know that the, the real drivers of economic recovery lies in business. But if there's going to be a myopic view on, on, on individual CEOs, uh, or, or who, who, who most of them would probably be afraid to, uh, express their views because of the kind of, um, public publicity, especially from the unions, they would be joined unto themselves. Um, it's almost like a self-limiting, Exercise because we're not really being brutally honest about how to take the country forward, and 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 that doesn't take any us anywhere. We, let's park that and and get to one critical issue that we've had conversation over and over about. You know, in terms of shifting the performance needle, you know, at governance level, because the biggest problem, hence government and you know, resort to. Um, own system, i.e., you know, using the banks, the fact that state does not have capacity. And at the heart of the, the government's plan, one would have hoped to hear or get to know about how the capacity of the state is going to be strengthened. 
but we amongst others to get the competency of leadership at the minister's level, ministerial level, deputy minister's level, premiers, and so on and so forth. You know, because the bulk of these uh, public officials, clearly, when you look at the kind of decisions they make, there's absolutely no confidence that there's capacity. And at the heart of that, my subconscious is that we don't seem to have or have embraced the culture of meritocracy. Yeah. Ask them to be corrected. Ask them to be corrected. That had we pushed a little bit more uh, and have done our with cater deployment, um, as a principle, I have nothing wrong with cater deployment, but it has to be deployment based on merit. Surely you can find a cater oh. that has the skill sets, competencies to be deployed. But no, why I, I, this I, culture I, of meritocracy is I, failing to take root? Yeah, I want to say to you, I, I, I disagree with you. I think, I think all South Africans should have a problem with cater deployment. All of us should have a problem with cater deployment. Because the issue with cater deployment is that it presupposes and, and it presupposes and instructs that only those who are affiliated to the political party in office must be deployed into the institutions of government to advance the work of government. But hold on. Government works even for those who didn't vote for it. So what now happens to those who didn't vote for that political party? Are they lesser citizens? Do they have lesser rights? We, this is why the issue of catered deployment to me is no different to a plane flying to Zimbabwe and carrying comrades with it. It's the same thing. It's a confusion between party and state. So all South Africans actually should have a problem with catered deployment. All of us should have a problem with catered deployment. The political party should win office. The political party should then deploy the president and cabinet and the president and cabinet should allow technocrats in government to do their work. We got into this mess where, where PPE tenders were being stolen and asbestos tenders were being stolen and financing, you know, the, the lives of, of, um, of influencers on Instagram. We got into this mess precisely because of cater deployment. So every single South African, with the greatest of respect, should have a problem with cater deployment. And we should not be apologetic about that. It's a part of how we got here in the first place. See, granted, if granted. You don't, sorry, let granted, me just finish granted. this. If, if you don't, if you don't move from saying it's competence and nothing else, you can't have a diluted version of the competence conversation. So I fully agree with you on the, on the confident, on the competence thing. But I'm saying that not just am I agreeing with you, I want to buttress the point that it should actually be competence above all else. Not confident competence in addition to. It shouldn't be, well, are you a member and are you competent? It should just be, are you competent? And only are you competent? And that's all that matters. Whether you're a member, you come from a different political party, or you are a different, you know, religious um, group, or you don't fit our narrow culture, that should have nothing to do with it. Because the minute it does, it's a vortex down to a very dark place that none of us want to go down. I agree, I agree with you. I suppose perhaps maybe if we, if the president, you know, uh, in economic recovery plan has had, because the weakness of the, you know, the, the, the capacity of the state has been identified and proven to be the weakest, the weakest link. So mm. if government would have had a 
program, for an example, on how to rebuild the capacity of state by looking at mechanism that look at, in your words, look at competency as the core criteria for selection mm. and nomination of individuals. Um, you know, we'll we, we take this, we'll, we'll literally shift the needle, performance needle to a greater height to a point where some of the multiple programs that government has had have been, are failed to, you know, at the, at the phase of implementation because government has to monitor. The job of the government is to set policy, monitor the programs which supposedly is being implemented by the private sector, you know, individuals. But if you don't have that kind of competence, first and foremost, to, to do a diagnosis of what should have been or a diagnosis of different scenarios, there is no way in which the 100 billion rands, which the president made mention of, can be safeguarded. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on that, we're, we're at Edinburgh. So, so, so in terms of taking the, in terms of moving forward, what would your advice be in terms of overhauling as a problem, problem of action, overhauling this, the, the entire capacity of state, bringing in universities, technical colleges to focus on critical key competencies, be it in education, be it in, in infrastructure and across the board for government to focus because my view is that we will not compete with the likes of Taiwan, we will not compete with the likes of Hong Kong, we will not compete with the likes of Israel, we will not compete with the likes of Australia, we are not com- going to compete with the likes of Asian Tigers, if you like, provided we address the meritocracy um, as, as, as a key component at the government level, so that every single individual who is appointed as a municipal manager, they, said it, they, they has to be certain non-negotiables. Um, for those individuals, you know, uh, to be appointed at. So, but we we seem to be failing. We we all talk the talk, but execution fails dismally unless there is a political will patch, maybe. Absolutely, you and know? it's um, you know, it's a it's a great pity. I, again, I, I think you know one has to one has to be um, measured. It, one has to be at even keel. One has to be balanced in our analysis, um, but. Even that notwithstanding, it, it goes it goes without saying that where we are is is definitely is definitely not where we should be. Um, not knowing what we know, not given what we've been given, not given the position we're in in South Africa, where we are is not where we should be. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, as we are wrapping up, maybe your party short around, you know, um, some of the policy, um, you know, reforms that could activate a scenario where we, 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 we you know, shift the performance level of GDP from where we are to at least 4%. What would are those, you know, uh, structural reforms? We know that there's been a number of issues that has been, that has been raised around SOE, for an example, we have correctly pointed out that we need to reform the environment or the regime that governs the state-owned enterprises. You know, what are other, you know, uh, you know, structural reforms that you would punt as a way of activating the reconstruction plan, which the president has talked is talking about? Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think some of those are certainly the ones that. I've mentioned already, I think there's a lot of work for the president to do 
with regards to um, um, the distribution infrastructure of South Africa, the road rail, as well as air infrastructure. I think that there's a time, there's opportunity for the president to focus there. I think the president needs to make some tough calls around uh, the public sector wage bill. Um, it, in my mind, in my mind, the president really needs to cut jobs. It's just that simple. You know, you got to ask yourself something like, we need provinces in South Africa in the first place. So, so, so there's just a, just a thought for you on this Nimrod and I'm cognizant of time. But when you are a CEO in charge of a turnaround, the first thing you do is you look at how do you make the business more efficient and how do you bring your people closer to your customer? And one of the most effective ways to do that is to remove the middle layer of management, which typically tends to be a barrier between the action happening on the ground and the customer experiencing your business at the top. And so in my mind, the president needs to do those kind of things, reduce the public sector wage bill, um, reduce the number of people in the public service, reduce the number of departments, reduce the number of middle managers. I mean, why, why do you need a director general sitting in the Department of Arts and Culture in in Pretoria? If that person is good, technical, and competent, take them and put them in an ailing municipality in Kuruma. Let them go and fix a real problem for real citizens in the real world, right? And so those are the kind of things that I think in the short term the president can do. But to his credit, the phenomenal work that's been done by the Hawks um, the rebuilding, as it seems, without evidence yet, admittedly, there have not been any successful prosecutions but for the Trotter Fellow in, in uh, the VBS case. But the, re- the rebuild, as it seems, of the state prosecutorial system, the criminal justice system, those, I think, are the things for which the president must be lauded because it's been a long time coming and long made last. I could not agree with you no more, Vosi. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. We have had a very interesting conversation with Vusi Tamakwai, who is the CEO and founder of My Growth uh, Fund, really giving us um, insight on the limitation of the, you know, president, uh, rec- uh, you know, recovery plan uh, from where he sits. And I suppose we have had an opportunity really to, you know, not so much about, you know, providing, you know, critique without necessarily providing solution. The show, this show prides itself in identifying the challenges and also pointing, you know, areas that could be remedied, you know, with a view of finding a long-term sustainable solution. Vusi, thank you very much. I'm sure the listeners have thoroughly enjoyed your insight once again. Thanks, Vlad. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you, sir. There you are. We, that is, that was Vusi Tamagwai, who is the CEO and founder of My Growth Fund, giving us a blow-by-blow in terms of unpacking the president uh, re- uh, reconstruction and recovery plan, which was announced sometimes last week, and his views that left was just say, a shopping list, but we pretty much delved into practicalities in terms of how uh, you know uh, those some some of those steps could be amplified to a point where we we are able to generate the kind of economic growth that you want. Unfortunately, we have a little bit there. We've run out of time. Tabo, thank you very much for coordinating the show, Tabisa. As always, your support is appreciated. Uh, you, the listener, this is your show, not my show. Let's do this again next time. Have a good one and take care.